0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I am delighted to welcome you to this event on making well-being the goal. This event is part of the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the Center of Economic Performance at LSE, which is one of the world's leading economic research centers. And it's also part of a series we're doing at the LSE called Shaping the Post-COVID World to think about how we can build a world that looks different and better in the wake of this pandemic. Now we have the most wonderful lineup of speakers. So I'm going to, and none of whom need an introduction. So I'm going to be super quick so we can hear mostly from them. We're going to start with Professor Lord Laird. Now Richard Laird is a labor economist who's worked most of his life on unemployment and inequality. He's also one of the first economists to work on happiness, and his main current interest is on how better mental health can improve our social and economic life. He was, as the video said, the founder director of the Center for Economic Performance at the LSE, and he recently won an ESRC Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in economics, the first such recipient since 2014. So after Richard presents uh, his thoughts on making well-being the goal, we will hear first from Alan Joe, who has been the CEO at Unilever since 2019, and before that, he worked for the company in North America for 14 years and in Asia for 13 years. He holds many other important positions as vice chair of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, a member of the World Economic Forum's International Business Mm -hmm. Council, and et cetera, et cetera. But I know him as one of the leading business people to speak out on issues of sustainable development, well-being, environmental, and social responsibility in the private sector. And he will speak about well-being in business. After Alan, we're going to hear from Lord Gus O'Donnell who uh, served as the cabinet secretary and head of the civil service for prime ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and David Cameron. Uh, and he is currently chair of frontier economics. And I'm proud to say a recipient of an honorary doctorate from the London School of Economics. And Gus will speak about well-being in public life. After Gus, we're going to hear from Baroness Claire Tyler who is the Liberal Democrat Lord Spokesperson for Mental Health? She held a series of senior positions in government, the last of which was Director for vulnerable, group, vulnerable Children's Group at the Department for Education. She's also chaired a number of charities, and and she will be speaking on issues around well-being in personal, family, and community life. So, with no more with no more fuss, let's turn to Richard uh, for his remarks.
1: Well, thank you so much, Vinoush. Am I visible yet? Am I muted?
0: We can hear and see you.
1: You can can see me. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Thank you very much. And thank you, all of you out there. Um, This is is an important celebratory event, but of course, it's also an event looking forward to the future um, and how we can produce a a world with greater well-being for all. But just looking back briefly, this is the 30th birthday year of the CEP. But there's also something wonderful happened this year that the ESRC picked two national uh, research institutes for special treatment. uh, And the centre was one of them. A wonderful vote of confidence. So I just want to uh, reflect on four of the people who've uh, contributed perhaps the most to this story Uh, The first is Margaret Thatcher. So in uh, 1990, Margaret Thatcher decided there ought to be an interdisciplinary research institute in social science. Uh, There was a short competition, then, of course, a long period of silence. And then one day I was rung up uh, to be told that uh, we had won the competition. Uh, It was going to be announced in 30 minutes. And what do we want to be called? Um, Because we had applied for a centre for economic performance and work organisation. They said, that's too long. It's got to be something else. So I said, what about Centre for Economic Performance? So that was how that happened. Uh, Immediately, we appointed Nigel Rogers as our wonderful administrator. And he, over the whole of 30 years, uh, has made an incredible contribution to the success of the centre. And of course, the other two people I want to... Mention are the brilliant people who succeeded me uh, as directors of the center, first uh, John Van Rienen and then Steve Machen. Uh, They really did an incredible job and raised the center to new heights. So I think we we all owe them an incredible debt. So the center has got a good future, but what about the future of the world? This is a good moment to talk about it because as everybody uh, is saying, after COVID, we must build back better. But what is better? You can only tell what is better if you have one single overarching objective against which you compare one situation with another and one policy with another. So what should that objective be? Well, I agree with the great enlightenment philosophers Uh, Starting, as Alan knows, in Scotland and spreading throughout the world, who said the objective is not life after death. The objective is the well-being of the people in this life. How far are they enjoying their lives, feeling fulfilled, feeling satisfied with their life? I think that was the most important idea of the modern age. Uh, Really, really extraordinary change in mindset. It didn't, of course, mean that the only good is the well-being of the people. There are many goods. So health is good, freedom is good, wealth is good, and so on. But for each of those, uh, you can ask, well, why is it good? And you could say, well, health is good because people feel awful if they're sick. Freedom is, uh, is good because people feel terrible in prison. But if you ask, why does it matter how people feel? You can't give an answer. So that is the argument that that how people feel about their lives is self-evidently good and that all other goods derive their goodness from the way in which they contribute to how people feel about their lives. That was the argument. I think it's an incredibly powerful one. And it says, obviously, that every action and every institution should have the, the the increase of well-being uh, as its goal. Well, uh, I've been at the LSE for 60 years now <laughs> as a student or, or, or a staff member. Uh, and the founders of the LSE, this is exactly why they founded the LSE, because they were good utilitarians. They believed that we needed an institution that was dedicated to improving the well-being of the people uh, of the world. Uh, And I think that's an incredible vision. Uh, William Beveridge, one of our greatest directors, was another utilitarian. That is exactly how he thought. And I think that that is how we all need to think now. But of course, it wasn't possible until recently to teach well-being. What the LSE taught were things which were thought to contribute to well-being. So they taught, taught about income, how that's caused health, family, stability, crime, War and peace, all these things were taught because they were thought, and indeed they do contribute to well being. But of course, what any finance minister, uh, uh, just think of Rishi Sunak t- today with his spending review, I mean, what he wants to know or should want to know is how far would extra uh, household income contribute to well being as compared with better health through more spending on the health service uh, or uh, safer streets through more money spent on police, or more stable families through more uh, money spent on family support, and, and so on. It was not until recently possible to answer that question and therefore it couldn't be taught, but that has changed. Now we do have uh, a new science of wellbeing over the last 30 years, which is making it possible for us to offer I think a better view of how the social sciences fit together, but also of course how to create uh, a a better world so let me tell you a little bit about this this science um the 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 most common way of measuring wellbeing uh is life satisfaction overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? not extremely dissatisfied ten extremely satisfied and uh these uh, questions um, have people give sensible answers for these questions because we can correlate the answers with, for example, objective uh, measurements of electrical activity in the brain. We can correlate them with um, observed uh, outcomes which they affect, like how long people live, how they vote. We can also correlate them with with the causes, and that's what I'm going to come to uh, now. So, We know a lot about the distribution of well-being and what causes it. Um, There is a huge spread of well-being. Probably if you even think of your friends, you'll recognize this. But if you think of the world as a whole, it's even more obvious. Uh, I'm a co-editor of the World Happiness Report, which comes out uh, each March, launched at the UN. This uses the Gallup World Poll uh, to uh, measure... The well-being of the whole population of the world. And the spread is massive. On that scale of naught to ten, one-fifth of the world's population answer eight or above. But one-fifth, this is incredible to me, one-fifth answers three or below. That is a massive spread. Across countries, the top countries, as I'm sure you know, are Scandinavian, uh, with an average of 7.5. And the bottom ones, are mostly war torn ones like uh, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, South Sudan, an average of three. Despite all of this, the main variation in well being in the world is within countries rather than between countries. 80% is within countries. So, what explains this huge variation within countries, including our own? Or putting the same question, what are the main causes of misery in each country, of people having low well-being? So to, to investigate this, our uh, group, uh, well-being group in the CEP uh, looked at eight major surveys in four advanced countries. Uh, we published our results in a book which we called, somewhat cheekily, The Origins of Happiness. Uh, and I would just like to show you uh, three slides which illustrate the main results, there's a book. Uh, Now let's look at the first slide. The first slide tries to explain the spread of adult wellbeing by things that we know about a person when they're an adult. Uh, So these are factors which are identified uh, uh, in uh, importance by their partial correlation coefficients with life satisfaction. So top is mental illness. This, I think, is a very striking finding. It depends on answers to a simple question. Have you ever been diagnosed with depression or an anxiety disorder? That's causing more misery than any other factor. Uh, Physical illness, illness also important. Then, below that, uh, human relationships at work, including the other aspects of the quality of work, uh, in the family and in the community. And then you can see that... um, as Minou said, I spent most of my life working on income and uh, unemployment, uh, thinking these were the main determinants uh, of well-being. They are of course, incredibly important and I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, pass up a single moment I've spent on them, but they are less important than health or human relationships as determinants of, of happiness and misery. And this is a standard finding worldwide. There is no country in the world where income inequality explains over 2% of the variance of well-being in the population. So we must have, I beg my colleagues, have a wider concept of deprivation, the one that only includes uh, income. It must include some of these other major causes of misery. The next slide uh, is going back a step uh, and saying Um, If we look at somebody uh, in their um, adolescence, what best predicts whether they will go on to have a a satisfying life as an adult? And as you can see, it's their emotional health at 16, just a very simple questionnaire, uh, explains more uh, of that distribution um, than the highest qualification you get even up to the PhD. I'm sorry about that for those of you who are PhDs. So obviously, if we are interested um, in, uh, in early life, in improving emotional health at 16, which is so crucial, um, who's going to do that? Many people would think it was mainly the family, but completely wrong. So look at the next slide. The next slide uh, looks at factors predicting emotional health at 16. And simply, which secondary school you're at and which primary school you were at five years earlier explains more of the variation of emotional health at 16 than everything we know about your family background, mental health of parents, socioeconomic group, etc. So schools have a power uh, that they often don't realise to affect whether a person has a satisfying life, not through academic achievement, but also through their emotional development, really very crucial. So, I think I will will go straight on to public policy, Uh, but I perhaps just mentioned that the distribution between countries that I mentioned, we can also explain, especially by variables like freedom, corruption, trust, social support, generosity, uh, and, and peace. So I think you can see that there's a subject here, rapidly growing science. Uh, it produces 2,000 articles a year in peer-reviewed journals and 200 articles a year in economics journals. Uh, so it's a good background to public policy uh, aimed at well-being. But to do that, to aim public policy at well-being, we need to know more than what I've just been talking about. The, the broad uh, causation process. We need to look at specific policies and what their effects are in terms of well-being and cost. Uh, and that requires a massive amount of experimentation um, in all policy areas. And of course, the essential thing in every policy experiment is that we do measure well-being uh, as the primary outcome. Once these, that's done, we can do what I hope Rishi Sunak will do one of these days, which is to look at, uh, analyze policies in terms of their impact on well-being and compare that with the cost and choose the policies which are most effective on that basis. I'm not saying that we should abolish the old style cost-benefit analysis, which I actually wrote a book about once. if we can, which we often can't measure benefits in units of money, we can turn that quickly into units of well-being since we know how much extra money affects well-being. But the problem has been with public policy that most public expenditure uh, doesn't provide a benefit which can be uh, uh, inferred in monetary terms by the way people choose. You can't Uh, get a valuation that way for health, social care, law and order, the environment, or the redistribution of money. But we can, for those areas, measure the effect that they have on well-being through these direct measures of the kind that we have, and that's now allowed in the Green Book. So politicians around the world are increasingly interested in this way of seeing things And they should be in their own interest because we've got very strong evidence produced uh, by George Ward in our group, which shows that the main factor which determines whether a government gets re-elected is the measured well-being of the population. So it's not the economy, stupid. It's everything that affects well-being. And politicians have every reason to take well-being seriously. Uh, And increasingly, of course, they're doing so. So for many years, Uh, You might know the OECD has been pushing well-being. It's now persuaded all its member countries to measure it. The EU Council of Ministers, this is less well known, last October urged member countries to, quote, put people and their well-being at the centre of policy design. The main countries which have done this so far are New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland, all led by ladies, but many more countries are now looking Uh, as you might say, quotes, beyond GDP. Meanwhile, in business, uh, there's increasing emphasis on the social component of the ESG agenda, as I'm sure Alan will be telling us. And that, of course, is because the well-being of workers really matters for its own sake. But it is also important that well-being has a massive impact on the productivity of workers uh, as my colleague, uh, Jan de Levy ha- has shown in excellent studies he's done with BT. But in the end, the philosophy of well-being says that everything, in the end, has to be justified by the way it contributes to well-being. And that applies not just to government, to business, but also to schools, uh, universities, and each of us as individuals. In Mexico, there's a university called the Tech Millennial University, And they tell their students, I think this is lovely, they tell their students they should have two overriding objectives uh, at university. Uh, The first is to find their purpose in life, and the second is to acquire the tools to achieve it. Wonderful. The Tech Millennium is also one of many universities that offer all its first-year students a course on the psychology of the good life. Uh, At both Yale and Harvard, a a course of this kind, has broken all records for the number of students attending. After all, why wouldn't you want to learn about how to manage your own life better, as well as your external life with other other people? So I think all universities should offer such a course. And of course, in primary and secondary schools, Uh, well-being should be an explicit goal, should be regularly measured, as it is in the Netherlands, and it should be promoted by proper evidence-based teaching of life skills throughout the school life. So finally, how, how is this well-being agenda going? I would say that the biggest progress has been actually at the personal level, uh, where people have uh, learned to improve their well-being and the well-being of the people uh, with whom they interact, enormously through two channels. One is the new so-called positive psychology, and the other, of course. Uh, is the import of the wisdom and practices of the East. Both of these have transformed many lives, but it's still a minority group. In business, I think there's a radical transformation uh, developing. Again, not everywhere. But perhaps the slowest progress is actually in this area of policy, which are where the, the LSE especially concerned. So what is holding progress back? I would say it's two things. First, the state of knowledge is too fragmented still, and certainly not enough experiments. But secondly, there are just not enough trained people to spread good practice throughout society. And these are the classic problems of an interdisciplinary field. Until it's recognized as a field, there is no academic career path in well-being. And the brave spirits who go there are taking considerable career risks. So the next key step is for well-being to become a recognized interdisciplinary field like geography or social policy. Whichever university takes this step will reap great rewards. I think the first is intellectual, because this is a field which can help promote real integration of social sciences. The second is educational. There's a huge demand from students and in the labour market for trained workers Uh, in business and government that's not being met. So, as Minush knows, (laughs) uh, I think LSE has a major role to play in all of this. Uh, It's uh, pioneered, of course, in previous decades, uh, sociology, uh, uh, human geography, uh, economic history, and it should be the pioneering place where well-being science becomes an established discipline. I think a key step would be to establish at LSE a chair in well-being science. But I think there's also, of course, a key role for UKRI in establishing well-being science as a field uh, where knowledge grows rapidly and talented people uh, pursue proper careers. And a good way forward there would be a well-being research institute spanning four or five of the main universities uh, that study well-being science. So I think we're at a, a crucial moment in this story and the COVID crisis um, has made us all rethink our priorities. Uh, the key principle uh, for the post-COVID world has got to be uh, the search for the greatest well-being. It's an inspiring principle. It's also one that can be studied in a rigorous way. So I think the institutions which lead this intellectual revolution will be the most exciting of all places to be. And they'll also be the places that contribute the most to a happier world. Thanks ever so much.
0: Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for that uh, inspiring start to this conversation. Let me now turn to Alan, who will talk to us about wellbeing in business. Alan.
2: Well, thank you very much, Manush, And I am absolutely delighted to... uh, speaking alongside uh, this incredible array of distinguished experts. I just wish we were doing it in person and getting some of the well-being benefits of some much needed uh, social interaction. As it is, I'm I'm speaking to you from our home in Edinburgh and therefore I was was delighted to hear Richard make such favourable mention of the Enlightenment, the cradle of modern Scottish inventiveness and philosophy. Uh, Richard, congratulations, too, for your uh, recent Lifetime Achievement Award. Well-deserved. And your reservoirs of expertise poured out of your keynote uh, address. At at Unilever, we do fully share your commitment to driving positive social and environmental change, and it's needed now more than ever. Uh, We passionately believe that business can and must be a force for good, and I'm going to spend my remaining four minutes making some brief remarks on why well-being is critical to business and why business is critical to well-being. So Unilever does believe in this multi-stakeholder capitalism, a model where looking after your employees, serving your customers well, treating your business partners with integrity and respect, ensuring you have a positive impact on your community and on the planet. Is how to best also serve your shareholders that there's no trade-off at all between looking after our team and other stakeholders and delivering superior returns to our owners this is how we try to run our business but it does begin first and foremost with the well-being of our employees quite simply when we look after our team our team look after everything else so we focus of course not just on compensation and benefits but on the culture we have, on inclusion, the physical environment that our people work in, the assistance and, and wider support services <clears throat> to ensure physical, mental and emotional wellbeing. I guess that bit of it seems more important now than ever. Um, and we are very proud that our measures of employee wellbeing have soared this year in these most difficult of times. Now. Our brands, too, are determined to be a force for good. Now, whether that's a deodorant brand like Shure promoting physical exercise or Dove helping to build self-esteem in, in young people or Lipton tackling loneliness. And in particular, I would call out one of our biggest brands, Walls Ice Cream. I suppose it's perfectly natural for an ice cream brand to have a goal of building a happier and more inclusive world. Um, who doesn't like an ice cream? How many... Faces as ice cream put a smile on it's the only thing my kids think is cool at all about my job is that we're the biggest ice cream company in the world, um, and in fact Walls is proudly an official contributor to Richard's World Happiness uh, Report. You know, if I could make a call to action, it is that protecting people's well-being is central to building happy, successful, and prosperous societies. We've got these two enormous problems in our time. Existential problems, climate change and inequality, and we are overstepping planetary boundaries. We're on the very brink of runaway climate change. And despite lifting many out of poverty, capitalism has resulted in gross inequality uh, that surrounds us. And we believe that business can and must evolve to a new model of inclusive and sustainable growth that puts people and planet first And the UN SDGs, uh, which I've put behind me here, those can be our roadmap to a happier future. They'll form the basis of better measures of global well-being than this obsession with GDP growth. As Robert Kennedy famously said, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. So we do need, as Richard has called for, a simpler dashboard that evaluates our social, environmental and economic performance, something Richard's been arguing for years, But let me end on a positive note. Um, This year's bad news feels like relentless wave after wave, but it has been heartening to see the way that we've come together uh, across countries and across sectors in the face of this pandemic. Look at tonight's event. We've got um, the royalty of academia, government, civil society, and even a commoner from the private sector. It's reminded us that we're more dependent on each other, more interconnected than we probably realized. And I think that this year has shown that values like integrity and respect, that basic kindness, fairness and equity are integral to healthy, happy and successful societies. Thank you very much, Manush, for a few moments to share these thoughts. Back to you.
0: Thank you, Alan, for those really thoughtful remarks and for the leadership you provide uh, among, among everyone in the business community. Let's turn to Gus uh, for probably the toughest part of the discussion, which is well-being and policy and public life and how to incorporate a well-being perspective in politics. Gus.
3: Thank you very much, Minush. First of all, three quick congratulations. Number one, to you, Shafiq. Joining us in the House of Lords, delighted. Number two to the CP. I mean, over the years, while I worked particularly in Treasury, the work they did on active labour market policies was unbelievably important. And actually, when we look back on it, unbelievably important for well being because they were keeping people in jobs and towards a world of better work. So, massively important there. My third thank you to Richard Layard, Um, a magnificent role model. Look at him, happy smiling, a man who takes well-being personally very seriously and is delivering well-being for the rest of us. So all those things are great. Now to the real question. Sorry. Now now to the real question about, um, as Richard put it, where are the areas where well-being is is working and where it's not? And uh, I think Alan gave us a brilliant example of uh, how the corporate sector is responding to the whole well-being challenge. And if you look at the the movement towards purpose amongst businesses, you'll see that's quite widespread, and they're getting it on the environmental side. As, as Richard said, there are some companies that need to pick up on the social side of measurement of well-being. Of us, um, in uh, and individuals, uh, it's big in individuals. When we talk about the government, you no know, problems. Well, first of all, let me get rid of one. The civil service, the civil service is there from the moment that the ons started measuring well-being, the civil service started measuring the well-being of its own staff. And we, we do that by department, we publish the results, and, we, um, and permanent secretaries are held to account for the well-being in their department of their staff. Um, so that's there. In public policy implementation, we have something called the Green Book, which many people listening in I'm sure will know all about, Treasury's Bible on Investment Appraisal. And if you look at that, it says the objective and it's just, you know, a new version has just come out with the spending review. So this is uh, just one objective is, and I quote, to optimize social stroke public value produced by the use of public resources. Uh, And it goes on to say all costs and benefits that affect the welfare and well-being of the population need to be included, uh, not just market effects. So we're getting there in the micro and the implementation but where is the speech that I can point you to from a prominent politician talking about the need to uh, increase the well-being of the nation? Where is that in the manifestos? And it's not yet. And I think this, to me, is a, is a uh, just shows how far behind the politicians are. Uh, the individuals are there, the companies are there. Um, how is it that uh, the politicians aren't getting this? And I'll put forward the various ask, answers that have been put to me. Um, but it is worth remembering that a lot of them are getting there. And as usual, I think we'll, we'll be a little bit behind the case. Uh, if you look at um, New Zealand, for example, Jacinda Ardern, I have to say, a wonderful former civil servant in the Cabinet Office, um, well-trained, well-trained, um, uh, she's uh she's pushing a uh, well-being budget in new zealand iceland scotland you know and all and many countries in between uh starting to look at this realizing not just that there are good slogans here but actually formulating policy around maximization of well-being massively important uh the kinds of worries we have language first of all um they worry about well-being being soft and cuddly and being not the right language for either the people that vote for them or the people that don't vote for them that they would like to vote for them. So they do need to think carefully about how we make the mass appeal, how we get the language right on this. And that's a challenge that I think is ongoing. Secondly, uh, some of them say, well, of course, it's obvious we're trying to improve uh, the well-being of the population. Um, That's what it's all about. The answer is, of course, it's not obvious. Um, And if it is obvious, why don't you say so? And you're not doing it it's quite clear there are lots of public policy areas that would be wildly different. And this is the other thing they say, well, it wouldn't make any difference. It will make a massive difference. Uh, Imagine if we had listened to the things that Richard was saying some time ago about mental health. Suddenly, during the COVID period, we've woken up to the fact that loneliness, social isolation, you know, I, I personally you are absolutely mad about the use of the term social distance. We do not need social distance. We need physical distance and social togetherness during this period. Um, and we are seeing some wonderful social togetherness, although I have to say it is now abating, which is very sad. Uh, and I'm hoping to do something about that. Um, the other point is it's very short termist. People, you're, you're pushing happiness today. And as Alan mentioned, one of the key issues facing the planet all of the countries, all politicians, is climate change. Our prime minister will face the great, to my mind, massive opportunity of chairing COP26, uh, which will now obviously be next year. He could grasp this. This is about the well-being not just of the UK, but of the planet. And uh, this would mean, yes, there may be some measures that have to be taken which would reduce short-term well-being in but the significant massive increases in well-being for the future will be such that this is definitely worthwhile so i think there is that trade-off and we should accept uh, understand it and uh, accept the fact that there are many things which are needed to ensure that our children's well-being uh, is taken very very seriously so i'm looking for an inspirational politician How can we bring that day forward when we get somewhere? Well, first of all, I think we use the things that we've already got. As Richard said, the public get this, business gets this. So we need to start this public clamour. We need to start this in a way you can see that Macron moved, uh, the En Marche party developed out of the public feeling that their politicians weren't delivering for them. And all the evidence uh, in the UK is that people do feel very disenfranchised from their politicians, Uh, trust in politics is at an all-time low. Um, These things are really corrosive. So can we get uh, the politicians, can we win the public to our side, the corporations? Can we win the intellectual arguments to show it's possible? That requires the academic disciplines to do all the things that Richard was talking about. Alan is an exemplar on what business can do for it. So... My kind of conclusion is this, is that the people are there, the leaders just need to follow. Very good. Thank you
0: very much, Gus. Uh, before I turn to Claire, I just wanted to remind the audience that you feel free to put questions into the into the Q and A function, and you can also vote for the question that you're you would like to have answered, and it will go up in the ranking. So please uh, please do that. Let me now turn to Baroness Claire Tyler uh, to make her remarks about well-being in personal, family, and community life.
4: Thanks so much, Minush. It really is a huge privilege and pleasure to be part of this very prestigious event today. And I'd like to start by congratulating Richard on his lecture and, in, and indeed for leading the way intellectually on the well-being science and, and breaking new ground in social sciences um, as he has done throughout his career. In the world of well-being, uh, still quite a small one, I think, in terms of devotees, but growing uh, a little, I sense. Richard has been a great inspiration, certainly to me and my faltering attempts to promote the notion of well-being as the overarching goal of public policy. I will remember the first ever debate I led in the House of Lords on the subject back in 2011, which attracted a grand total of four speakers. It was very late one night when all sensible people had gone home. But one of those four people, of course, was Richard. And I shall never forget that. Now, a particularly surprising revelation of today's lecture to me was that we have Margaret Thatcher to thank for the CEP, <laughs> such an August academic center of excellence uh, who'd have thought it, as they say, but I'll just leave it there. Now, subjective well-being and why it matters, I think, is an endlessly fascinating debate. As Richard says, at its most basic, it just self-evidently does, contributing to fundamental human needs for fulfillment life satisfaction and happiness. In short, that which makes life worthwhile, as Bobby Kennedy so memorably said over half a century ago. Richard mentioned the importance of family and personal relationships. Another issue um, in my experience, so often overlooked in public policy with unfortunate and unforeseen consequences. People are often surprised how high up the list of things that really matter and actively contribute to their well-being, personal relationships come. Now of course, work and physical health usually come right at the top of that list. I, I guess you'd expect that. But personal relationships usually comes next in terms of self-reported contributors to well-being. And these precious uh, human relationships are largely played out in the family, in the home, with the people we live with, whoever they are, but also in the community. Now, I agree with Richard when he says that also relationships in school and work are very important, but I want to focus on family relationships because you've asked me to do that. The COVID crisis, I think, has really brought home in a way that none of us could have predicted a year ago. The fundamental importance of well-being and personal relationships and their interconnectedness in both directions, whether in the heartbreaking stories of people not being able to see or touch loved ones in care homes, or even when dying in hospitals, or being able to attend family funerals in person. And in the community, the almost instant and organic growth of mutual aid groups where volunteers looked after neighbors self-isolating or unable to look after themselves in a way that I don't think I can remember in my lifetime. And I was interested to see in a a recent ONS survey that um, of the 43% of people who said they could identify some positive lifestyle changes, during lockdown, almost 30% said they appreciated being more in touch with their neighbors and wanted to carry on with that. Now, all of this, I would contend, has taught us a lot. And of course, sometimes we've learned it extremely painfully of the very essence of being human, and indeed our most primal instincts. We know that people at risk of loneliness, and that's something Gus touched on during the pandemic, were those already at risk of loneliness, including people living at home. I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but lonely people felt even more lonely during this period of, in, of enforced solitude. We also know that romantic relationships are very important to young people, and indeed perhaps the not, so, not so young as well. Now, establishing these new relationships has been difficult when trying to stick to the social distancing rules, as I'm sure we have all tried to do. And I think that that would really make for a very interesting piece of social science research one of these days. Reflecting back on my professional life, perhaps it doesn't come as all of that much of a surprise this, this importance of personal relationships. Both my time as the CEO of Relate and as chair of CAFCAS, the Children and Family Court Advisory Service, made me appreciate how essential personal and family relationships are to good mental, mental and emotional health, including the ability to build a reservoir of emotional resilience to deal with the tough times which will face us all, as well as the great emotional distress and damage and indeed the sheer misery caused by unhealthy relationships, high conflict family breakdown, especially where high levels of parental conflict are are witnessed by children. Without help and support, this emotional distress can so easily lead to long-term mental health problems. So I very much agree with Richard on the critical importance of both good mental health and conversely, the adverse effect of mental uh, ill health on overall well-being. Richard raises the spectre of a a, a well-being research institute uh, spanning a number of universities to to study well-being science. It sounds a great idea to me and just leads me to wonder to conclude whether there ever will be a royal college of well-being to which health, social care, And many other professionals and practitioners in many disciplines can belong to in our quest to make the world a happier place, but to make that something really tangible. Thank you very much,
0: Claire. Thank you very much. OK, let me um, jump in with some questions. We've got quite a few coming in, so I'm going to just start from the top. Uh, which is a question from Glenn Williams Spiteri, who's an LSE student from Malta. And it's a question for Richard. Uh, as you've shown, one of the biggest determinants of emotional health at age 16 is secondary school, not family background. But doesn't one's family background determine their, the, his or her future education institution at any level based on the family's ability to pay? Therefore, couldn't worsening emotional mental health be a negative spillover of income inequality?
1: Well, I think that's a slight misunderstanding, but thank you but very much for the question of, of what, what is done in in that analysis. I mean, this is uh, an, an attempt to hold, uh, always to look at the effect of one thing holding the other's constant. So this is the, an attempt to look at the effect of the school holding constant the family background, the family income, the family mental health of the parents, and, and so on. Um, of course... Uh, there, there, there may be some correlation, but this is showing the, the independent effect of the school, um, holding constant uh, the, uh, the family background. And um, I, I think it's, uh, it's really quite, quite r- remarkable that, that that should be so large. I think it's one of the most important things, actually, that has emerged from, uh, from our work, of our group.
0: Okay, let me turn to the next question, which I think I'm going to start with uh, Gus and then uh, turn to Richard and all the panelists. It's from Tony Beaton from the University in Queensland, which he reminds us is in COVID-free Brisbane, Australia. Uh, And the question is how do we move politicians forward towards the longer term consideration of well-being in all things, much like in New Zealand? This was attempted in 2009-10. The political agenda changed. In Australia, well-being was politically acceptable in 2011. By 2015, it didn't exist on the national agenda. Uh, Gus, do you want to take that one on? And I'm curious also if you could respond to the point that Richard made, which is there is now evidence that Politici- political parties who improve well-being get re-elected, and shouldn't that be persuasive to politicians?
3: Yes. To so take your second point first, I mean that's that's why we need more politicians to start reading uh, uh, Mr. Ward's work, uh, <laughs> Ward's work, uh, the LSE's output, because they, they haven't got it yet, and um, all their fancy polling, which seems to go wrong quite often. Um, They need to understand uh, some of the clear drivers. So once we get that through, I think that will help enormously. Um, It's absolutely true that there are some politicians, sometimes it comes and goes. Australia was a classic. I was involved in a review of their public service just before the last election, and that review seemed to die completely with the election. Um, I think uh, getting politicians to think longer term Uh, Is helped by having longer terms. I mean, that's one thing that I'm in favour of. And you've got relatively short terms in places like Australia, New Zealand. Um, I uh, believe that you need someone to be thinking about in practical terms, what does this really mean? And someone to be thinking politically. Not only do we need to understand why we have these policies, but how do we sell them? How do we make them popular? Um, I think everyone would get that. Claire mentioned the whole business about loneliness and all the rest of it. We've realized during this COVID period that there are severe issues and that we need to solve them. I think what we're not until there's a crisis to be thinking about people's well being and to be thinking about what is it about, for example, bad work that creates problems, uh, insecurity in employment, those sorts of things. What is it about our lives? That means that um, uh, in those those periods when income is going up, uh, you often find that well-being isn't going up in, in tandem with them. And, you know, you, you see this classically in the U.S. If you look at Angus Deaton and Anne Case's work on the deaths of despair, you know, you see there's this group for which uh, the American dream has just gone. Uh, and we need to think very carefully about how we get there. I, I just think... At the moment, we're in that lag between uh, policies being understood and the political parties getting around to realizing how they can weaponize mm. well being actually brings them success in elections.
0: Thank you, Gus. Do any of the other panelists want to say anything about the politics and getting politicians to prioritize this?
1: I, I, I don't mind t- saying something because I think, I mean, I've found a lot of individual politicians who are very sympathetic to this, from all parties. But I think that they are shy about it because they feel that although they know um, that the things which really worry people are mainly actually to do with health and human relationships. And I didn't mention, but I'll just mention now, a survey by Sainsbury's, um, which asked people what they worry about. And money and debt uh, came seventh of all the top six well, health and human relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think people know that this is the case, but they feel that somehow people don't think that's the business of the state. And I think that this is the real issue. What is the business of the state? Uh, now, we know that before 1870, people thought that education wasn't the business of the state. So uh, the, the big task is to change people's picture of what is the business of the state. And I think there's actually a, a, a very interesting, very long time lag here. Well-being used to be the business of the church. That's where that's, they, they were the people who, who were meant to be thinking about well-being. And, that, and now they're not uh, much on the scene. And it's disappeared. It, it's, it, but, but the state has got to take it up. And I think we've got to really remind people of the history of how the state didn't do one thing after another uh, to say to them, why don't you do our well-being?
4: Just very briefly, the one thing I want to say is that I think, I think actually like Richard, fundamentally most politicians do get it, but I think the language is sometimes a bit problematic I think that in this, you know, current rather populist age in which we live, the language of well-being is sometimes associated with sort of, you know, rarefied intellectual debates like this, Um, and and politicians have a bit of difficulty with it. But I think when they start saying, it's about what really matters to people in their lives, and actually, it's about what is going to determine how they vote when politicians Understand that, and possibly find slightly easier language to convey it in. Um, I think that's when well-being is going to sort of be part of what all parties talk about. Okay, this one I'm going to
0: give. I'm going to have a geographic bias. I'm going to give it to Alan. It's from Doogie Peedle from the Scottish Wildlife Trust. Uh, I'll let you start, Alan. How important is access to nature and green space for physical and mental health and overall
2: well-being? Well, thanks, Manush, and thanks, Dougie. Um, Happy to be stereotyped as a happy (laughs) Scot. Proudly proudly Scottish, proudly British, and proudly a citizen of the world. Um, I don't know the facts, but I imagine there's all kinds of evidence that shows that access to the outdoors, to green space, that physical exercise are massive contributors to. Uh, health and well-being, I think what, what we worry more about is, will we have green spaces into the future? Mm-hmm. Um, the rate at which we are destroying uh, land is awful. It is mostly done in the pursuit of agriculture, both um, animal husbandry and the growth of crops, and it's completely unnecessary. There's a wonderful uh, movie I would recommend to you called Kiss the Soil. It shows how regenerative agriculture is not just good for the environment, but good economically. Um, And I think when we all shift towards a mindset of we cannot destroy more land in the pursuit of um, feeding ourselves, and nor do we need to, that we can easily uh, make better use of the land that's already been cleared and in fact regenerate land for future generations to enjoy, it will be a meaningful contribution to uh, human well being. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a business, we've recently introduced our regenerative agriculture code, and we will disproportionately buy uh, from suppliers who are regenerating nature rather than destroying nature in the pursuit of profits.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Alan. Would anyone else like to comment on green space and well being? Gus?
2: Yes. Um,
3: just to say, there is a lot of research on this, um, and uh, surprise, surprise, it makes a big difference. Uh, even in, in big cities like London, uh, there's a paper in Applied Geography, I think, last year. Um, if you live within 300 uh, metres of uh, green space, you're, you show significantly higher levels of well-being. Uh, now, obviously, there are, there are questions about causation rather than correlation, but... Uh, there's a lot of research. Um, I think the LSE actually did something called mapiness where uh, people were asked to take care at various times during the day. And I think it's just the geography department did it and, um, and give a view about their, their feelings at the time. And there was a very strong, again, correlation between how they felt and uh, where they were. So green spaces and water actually. Mm. Uh, make a big difference. Overlooking a river and uh, the sea, those help as well.
0: Let me turn to Charlie Hicks from Oxford, who's an MSc behavioural science student at LSE, who asks a question to Richard. How is emotional health in 16-year-olds measured? What does emotional health mean?
1: Oh, it's a battery of questions. Um, about um how you you feel about yourself how you react to setbacks um there's, there's um i'll, I'll send it if you email me and i'll send you the questionnaire okay. but um it it's 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 a a a, a well developed subject i mean these these questionnaires um that are given to young people Um, have been shown to have very high validity and predictive power. Um, So there's nothing nothing peculiar about it. It's just the sort of thing I think that you would recognize in people.
0: Okay. Uh, Let me turn to Joe Farrington Douglas. Uh, I, I think any of the panelists can answer this from the Health Foundation who's an LSE alumnus. I've recently been watching Brave New World where everyone is happy but the society is grossly unjust and unfree. Don't objective measures of social justice, like shorter and unhealthier lives, matter more than what, we might, what might be quite superficial measures of life satisfaction? Or are these measures robust to capture long-term well-being rather than just short-term?
1: It's a very good question, but can I answer that? Because yeah, i uh, aware that, that I hadn't time to, to, to address it um, in my initial remarks. Um, what matters in this view? It is not just the average well-being in the society, but the, the, the spread, in particular, how many people have really low well-being. So social justice, to my mind, is about the, the inequality of well-being. And, and the inequality of well-being is, as I was trying to say earlier in my, my talk, more fundamental than the inequality of income, because... Well-being is caused by more things than income. And therefore, if we're bothered about the, 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 the huge inequality in the quality of life that people around us experience, we should be worried about all the sources of it, but we should be very much worried about the dispersion. Um, and I personally think that we should give a great deal of weight um, when we're look at thinking about policies to the reduction. Of low or the improvement of, of, of low life satisfaction as compared with the, the further enhancement of high life, high life satisfaction. So, that is uh, social justice is a part of how we think about well being. We, th- we should think not only about the average, but about the spread. Okay.
0: I'm afraid I've got 53 questions lined up, and I only have time to ask one more. So I'm going to ask one question to all the panelists, if I may, which is how would the world look different in your each of your areas in business, in government, in community and personal life. And Richard, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, If we if well being was at the center of things, what would look different? How would resources be allocated differently? How would how would how things just look different in your areas? And maybe I will start with Alan and then turn to Claire, Gus, and then Richard.
2: Um, I think chief execs would be measured on social and environmental impact leading to well-being as well as financial measures. That would cause a different allocation of capital and it would raise well-being.
4: Okay, great answer. Uh Claire, I think that public policy would take much more seriously and have specific measures to address things like loneliness and social isolation um and I also think that family policy uh which so I think some some people don't think doesn't exist actually, would um try to do much more careful balancing acts between. Uh, sort of, you know, family commitments, family responsibilities, work responsibilities, um, and other aspects of, of of public policy, and and how, for example, sort of health and mental health services are delivered. Okay, thank you, Gus. Um,
3: well, all of the what the others have said, but I think uh, there will be much more spent on mental health. Absolutely, no question about that. Uh, there will be more generally in spending that was focused towards prevention rather than cure. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot more time on behaviour changes uh, rather than uh, cure. So uh, from the health budget, lots more on the behavioural stuff, lots less on drugs. Um, in schools, we'd be asking the schools to uh, measure the well-being of their pupils and to uh, deliver all the things that Richard was saying rather than worry about and publish in great detail which school has got slightly better exam results than which other one. In macro policy, there'd be things like, uh, to use a phrase of a famous politician, no more boom and bust, you'd want to smooth out those things because big recessions, as we are about to see, create unemployment, which has scarring effects, which lasts for generations. So you'd try and smooth those things out and you would use monetary and fiscal policy uh, very actively those things. We've used monetary policy in the past. We're starting to realize particularly with our interest rates, we have the opportunity to use fiscal policy to do that. So I think it would, it would permeate the whole of policy. Very
0: good. Richard, the final word.
3: How
1: would the world Well, be? Well, I, I want to concentrate my final word on individuals who we haven't talked about so much, but um, I want a world where uh, individuals are trying in the way that they live to create as much happiness in the world as they can. Um, and I think that that is a terrific way to think about what one is trying to do in one's life. It's a terrific idea to communicate to quite young children because surely by the time they've got to 16 or 17 they won't have any idea what the purpose of their life is and they'll be over-focused on themselves and that will not be good for their mental health. So I think that's the sort of society we want. Um, I'm a co-founder, of a movement called Action for Happiness, whose members pledge to uh, try to create as much happiness in the world as they can. And um, in answer to the question, uh, uh, my answer would perhaps be, uh, please join Action for Happiness.
0: Very good, very good. One of my favorite uh, pharaonic phrases is when, uh, when you died and they chose where you went in the afterlife, they'd ask you one question, which is, did you find joy in your life, and did you bring joy to the lives of others? Yes. So I think that uh, yes. you know, is a very good a good point to end. And Richard, I think you have brought much joy to the lives of others, including all <laughs> of us who've participated in this panel, but clearly also in the wonderful work you've done at CEP and in your six thirty years at CEP, and in your sixty years at the LSE. Uh, so thank you very much for spreading happiness and thank you to the, our outstanding panel for really enlightening us and bringing us happiness through learning. So good night, everyone. And thank you. For, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank, you thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All panellists, if I can say that. Thank you, Alan, yeah. uh, Gus uh, and Claire so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Well, nice.
0: Good night, everyone. Bye. Okay. Uh,
1: Approved.
2: Thanks very much, everybody. Take care.
1: <laughs>